Okay? And we will be here for four and a half hours. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, no, for real, God, we, we love you so much. The time of worship we had this morning was so sweet. And thank you for meeting with us. Uh, it was just, it was a tender time. And uh, Lord, I, I think that it is that you're, you're drawing our hearts closer to you. And, and do, we do want to know you more. We want we to, uh, to meet you in your word. And, and we want to uh, not be like the rest of the world. The rest of the world um, looks to your word flippantly. And, uh, and we want to look to your word intently. And we want to draw everything from that well that is, that is available to us. And so please, God, make us to be good stewards of your word. Yeah. Well, we thank you, uh, Lord, that we just have an opportunity to glorify your name. And we pray, Lord, I pray, uh, as the pastor of this ministry, that these young people would recognize that it's their responsibility to take this worship and this glorification and this praise and to carry it into the streets of Kansas City, into their dormitories, and into their workplaces, and that people, that all people would know that you are worth worshiping. Mm-hmm. Lord, forgive us for all the times that we think praise and worship is something that we do on a Sunday morning. Forgive us of those thoughts. And Lord, help us to be responsible for glorifying your name everywhere we go. Lord, we pray this morning that you would show us again, teach us, maybe even for some of us, anew, fresh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We talk about it. We use those words all the time, and we even have a program to support it. And God, so often we forget, uh, Lord, what you're actually calling us to. And so, God, we pray that you would help us this morning, remind us that we might be strengthened so that, Lord, just as we talked about last night, you would show us how to do what we're doing, but do it in a greater relationship with you, with more passion for who you are, that the character of Christ would be all over us. Lord, help us to be like you. We love you so much. We just ask that you would allow me to be succinct and clear and uh, as brief as I need to be today. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 6. The question on the floor this morning is, are you a disciple? Okay, and the thing is, we would all just say yes, because we go to Midtown Baptist Temple. We would say, yes, we are. Well, I'm a disciple. I have my Paul and I have my Timothy and... I'm a, and you've checked that off the list and, and you've taken it for granted. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple for real. And, um, and we're going to start in, right here in Mark chapter 6. And what's been going on up to this point is Jesus Christ's ministry had been focused primarily on the Jewish people. And he was going and he was preaching in the temple and he was, he was among the Pharisees. You guys know who the Pharisees are? The religious order, right? And he was spending his time with those people. And, and as we know, the reception wasn't great. The reception wasn't great. People weren't receiving him. And, um, but he had some followers. And there was a large group of people that were following him around from place to place to hear his teaching, to watch the miracles. There was fascination. There was curiosity. And there was a group of people that were often referred to as disciples, right? People that just followed Jesus. Um, and we're going to kind of start there. But what I want you to look for is that there's a narrowing down in the process of calling people disciples. There's a point at which God kind of begins to reframe what it means to be a disciple here for us. And we begin to see it as a very specific thing. And it's the thing that we want to be called to. We want to be like the 12. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 6. Are you ready? Yeah. You have your pens ready? Yes. Mark 6, 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country. Oh, you know how this is going to go. You've heard, you've heard this story, right? This is, this one gets me, guys. Okay. So he, he comes into his own country, the place where he grew up, and his disciples follow him. 
And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these, uh, these things? And what wisdom is this, uh, this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Okay, now hold up. So at first they're like, wow, uh, the people are astonished by Jesus. Like they see that he's working miracles and that, that he's teaching at a capacity that seems beyond such a simple man who was raised by a carpenter. How could it possibly be that this man knows so much of God's word? Okay, but wait, wait. Verse 3, it's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph and Judah and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And, and they were offended at him. They saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, and yet they were offended because, because they didn't understand what was taking place and that this was the Son of God. They refused to acknowledge him as divine. And so even in his own country, the people that are the most familiar with him, he's rejected. So we continue on. Uh, Jesus said, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and, and his own house. And he, would, he, and he could not there do, do, sorry, and he could not there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. So, so their lack of belief hindered what God did in their midst. And so here we go. Jesus begins here preparing his disciples. Okay, this is where he's preparing them to do the work that he's going to leave them with. And this is where the training process begins. Verse 7. And he called unto him, uh, unto him the twelve. He called unto him the twelve. Twelve men. And so my first point, I think it's going to be really difficult. I remember doing this a lot last year. Okay, but the very first point is this call to be a disciple is three things. You're going to hear a lot of P words today. Uh, I'm using the P words. That's just how it worked out. When I do that, I feel really clever. <laughs> kind of poetic. It's as poetic as I get is just doing that. So this call to be a disciple, it's a privileged position, it's a personal position, and it's a very particular position to be called a disciple, to be numbered among the twelve. So let's, let's look at a parallel passage here in Mark chapter 3 verse 13. And it says, and he goeth, this is Jesus again, and he goeth up into a mountain and, he, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him and he ordained twelve. He ordained twelve. The 12 disciples in the Gospels are different than the masses of disciples that have been following Christ in previous chapters. These 12 men represent a group of people set aside for a special and unique work. These men were set apart to be pioneers for the Gospel. These men were entrusted with the word and the words of Jesus and the work of his ministry. Now, Kaya is also a privileged ministry. Just like those disciples, we've been set apart for a, a very privileged work. We are a ministry of young people in a church where we actually believe that the word of God is true. And in a world full of, of Christians, what do they say? It's like, uh, it's something like 2.5 billion people claim to be Christians. Okay? And that includes, that includes all the Catholics and just everybody who's just like, yeah, uh, uh, Christian? Like they, that's the box that they check? And then like, uh, like one billion of those people are actually evangelical. 
Okay, and then, if we're going to be real honest with ourselves, of the evangelical Christians, how many of those actually believe the Word of God? Now, here we are. I believe that we're a remnant people. That we're a people that are of are a, a, a great strategic position. We're a people who hold true and hold fast to the words of God. And we don't look like, let's just be honest, we don't look like other churches. We don't look like other congregations. And I really believe that the parallel is this, that God has, has called us and deter, determined some things for us that we would be a part of a church that actually treats the Bible like a sword, worth being cloven to. We are a ministry of young people in a church where we believe God's words. And, and most churches in America, most churches look more like country clubs and shopping malls rather than training grounds. Most churches in Kansas City that reach young adults, you guys know these churches, you've seen them. Some of you have visited them. Most churches in Kansas City that reach out to young adults are more concerned with style than substance. They're more focused on whether or not the worship meets their cultural standards than they are about whether or not they're actually worshiping at the throne of Jesus Christ. People who are genuine, they genuinely love God, who genuinely, they, 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 they know that, that he saved them. But they genuinely have no purpose outside of getting a good life. Getting a good life is their primary focus. And in preparation for this, I actually listened to, well, I won't even get into that. I listened to some messages this week from other churches just so I felt comfortable saying that. <laughs> People don't love God's word. Um... There's churches that facilitate community and moral living. But they don't equip their people. But that's not us. That's not us. Kaya is a unique ministry of young people who are called, but not just called, they're sent. They're sent. We believe that we're sent. We're unique in that way. We're like the 12 disciples. We're not like the mass of disciples who are just following Christ around, right? Fascinated by, by what he had to say. We're privileged in that way that we've been called and that we're responsible. Like, do you ever think that you're responsible for what God's given you in Midtown Baptist Temple? Got my hand in my pocket doing that? I've got a long message, so this can't happen. I've got to be ready here. Okay. Nimble fingers. Okay, now, the other thing about this calling and this setting apart and this pulling this 12 away from the masses and saying that these guys are unique is that he wants it to be personal. So if you look at, back at Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him. This calling is a very personal, personal one. And so when we talk about being a disciple of Christ, what we're referring to is being like the 12 in that they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't have the complete word the way we do. What they had is a, is a physical, present relationship with the Son of God. They got to live with Him. They got to sleep near Him. And they got to, to eat and break bread with Him. And you know what? What we have is, is this is what we steward as disciples. This is Jesus Christ to us. This is His mind. And, and in that way, we get to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But then again, if we don't take the word of God seriously, then we neglect to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we don't look like the 12. We look like the masses. See, see, we're a privileged people, but we're also a people called to a personal relationship. 
And many of you have, have heard the call to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you heard it years ago. Maybe when you accepted Jesus Christ, you were a young child. Or maybe some of you, I know, have, been, have accepted Jesus Christ in the last year and even in the last few months. And you've been called and set apart, and now it's time. You're, you're called to be a part of a privileged group of people who are studying God's word. And now it's time to make God's, uh, a relationship with God personal to you. To take it personal, to make it intimate. If you love him at the level that you say that you love him, then why do you neglect to spend time with him? It's such a simple question, but yet we become so preoccupied with the world that we can look just like the masses of disciples, just the people who are wandering around looking for a handout. We can look just like those people when what God's intention is that he separate us and draw us into a more intimate relationship with him. They are also a particular people. You look at verse 14 again, the second half there, and, and that he might send them forth to preach. So they're privileged, it's personal, and then he's prepared them for a particular work that, that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. These men were given the particular or specific work of preaching the gospel. God separated these men to go and speak on his behalf. Where was Jesus during this time in the story, in the story that we're about to look at? It doesn't tell us, but we know what his disciples were doing. Jesus was using his, his disciples, his comrades, to do his work. Arms reaching out to, into the community to share the love and the gospel and the truth of who Jesus Christ is. The Messiah has come. We're here to tell you. He's using them for a particular work. And it's different than the others. It's different. The religious order, they didn't even acknowledge Christ as Messiah. The general mass of followers, they were intrigued, they were captivated, but had mixed intentions. These men, though, these men, these men gave up everything. Their walk with Christ began with sacrifice and abandonment. You remember that? They had to give stuff up to follow Jesus. These were the men that would be the forerunners of the, uh, for the gospel in our world, and Christ separated them for this work. And here's our first key point. A true disciple of Christ is unique in their relationship to Christ and their devotion to his work. They're unique. And the question for you is this. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot compare yourself among yourselves. You cannot compare yourself to the mass of Christians that live in Kansas City. You cannot compare yourself to the churches that you see on TV. You cannot place yourself in the, in the commentaries of the Christian authors that you write. The question is whether or not you're going to have a personal walk with Jesus Christ in his word and be a unique and separate and holy person in this world doing what he asked you to do. That is what a disciple is. Don't get it twisted. Don't be confused. The fact that you go to our church or you go to church does not make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not at this level. Okay, so, so back to chapter 6. Did you guys get that? A true disciple of Christ is unique in the relationship to Christ and their devotion to his work. Back in chapter 6, okay, he's called out these 12. He's given them a specific work. But then he says something very important. He gives them specific instructions. In verse 7, we find that this call is a partnership. Partnership. That's the look you give your dad. Ah. Dad's status is great, actually. I don't mind. She's like, <laughs> we get it, Brandon. <laughs> they all start with P's. <laughs> I was just, I'm just kind of impressed. I don't usually have time to do that. 
Uh, this call is a partnership. Look, verse 7. And he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two. Okay, let's not neglect this. Let's really look at this. So what he did is he made sure that they had one another. The disciples were commanded to go in twos. The question is why? There are certain things in ministry that God just prefers to achieve in teams. There are certain things in ministry that God prefers to do in teams. Christianity isn't a rogue endeavor. It's not something you get to do just on your own. You don't get to go it alone. You don't get to, it requires you coming together with the body of Christ. And we see this all throughout the Acts. We see it in the Pauline epistles. You know, Paul was always quick to go with someone. I mean, he's not even a part of the original 12 here. He's not, he's not one of these 12 disciples. But he, he recognized this truth from the very, very beginning, that disciples go in twos. And so whether it was with Barnabas or with Silas, he knew that this was something that he was supposed to be doing. And the question is, so why? Why is it God that made it this way? Why is this principle in place? Well, first of all, ministry requires unity. Ministry requires unity. He wants leaders who are establishing bonds in ministry, bonds with one another. He wants, he wants people who are connected to each other because he finds glory in the harmony of his church. When his disciples can work in teams, he's glorified by that. His bride isn't an individual. His bride is a conglomeration of people that have come together in his name. And the more unified they are, the more beautiful they are to his eyes. As a wife, we're much more precious to him. As a bride, we're much more precious to him. The more single-minded we are, the more that we lock arms, that we, the more that we go in a harmonized fashion, the more glorified he is. And the more precious the, precious the marriage supper will be. Matthew 18, 9. Again, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them uh, of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Like, that's powerful to me because I don't get it. Well, why? Because he wants it that way. Like when two, he's saying here, when two or three are gathered together in prayer, there's something particularly powerful about that kind of prayer. Yeah. Man, thank God. There I am in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I love that these two things go together because we always read them separately, don't we? We always read them as two different principles, but the two things go together hand in hand. So what he's talking about is the effectiveness of unity and harmony between people. And Peter's question is, well, what if I hate my brothers and sisters in Christ? (laughs) (laughs) Valid question. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, No, in order to keep unity, I say unto thee, Until seven times seven, or, uh, the, until seven times seven, but seventy times seven. Oh, and, and, and Jesus is just saying, No, you forgive me, 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 you forgive me. The reason is because unity is the most preferable thing to me. Because it's worth you being right with one another. Because I've got something for you to do as a team. And, and if you can't work as a team, like, you know, the, the, the sports analogies are great. And Kenny wasn't afraid to bust that out last night. It's so true. Like, a lot of you grew up, didn't you grow up playing individual sports? Individual sports put you in deficiency in terms of your understanding of how the church works. Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting in the pool and I'm swimming a lap. I'm running this race alone. I'm wrestling this person. 
And, 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 it's, and it's separate. Now, it might teach you rigor and discipline and all those good things, but listen to me. You don't learn teamwork that way. And there's something unique about a bunch of people in a locker room. Kenny and I talked about this earlier today. There's a, he was telling me, can I just say this? The way you said it? So he was saying he went to a school that was primarily white. And his mom sent him there. And when he first got there, it was difficult for him because it, culturally it was a shock. But when he played sports, what happened is when he was in the locker room with all those guys that were a different color than him, and they, were, and they put on the, the, the team color, there was no race. It's like over time they became a family, and those things just disappeared. The things that separated them disappeared. And you know what? That's the beautiful thing about team sports, and it's the beautiful thing about the church. When we put on Christ, all we can see is Christ. When we put on the jersey of his word, man, all I see is brothers in arms and sisters in arms. And nothing's going to get in the way. And if there's a skirmish in the locker room, a skirmish on the field, you know what? We're going to come together later on, and we're going to, we're going to fight through this, and we're going to work through it. And on the other side of those conversations, we're going to be a team, and we're out there to win. We're, listen, nothing's changed from last year. We are here to win Kansas City for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go out. I'm going to, I'm going to die doing that. I'm getting gray hairs. They're coming in. I'm getting more wrinkles. You know what? I'm thankful for them. Because those gray hairs means I'm giving everything I got. And I want to continue doing that. But it won't happen without unity. It won't happen without the team. The other thing is ministry requires accountability. That's why he does it. That's why he unifies us. That's why he puts them together in twos like that. Ministry requires accountability. He wants leaders that challenge and encourage one another. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. We know that passage. Well, what about Isaiah uh, 35, 3? Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a, a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with the recompense, he will come and save you. Those are encouraging words from, a, from, from one brother to another, one sister to another encouraging one another, lifting each other up. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Listen to me. Without one another, we can't do that. You might be able to go to the Word and find encouragement, sure, but God also intended that we have the church that we might encourage one another and push each other beyond what we think we're possible of, uh, uh, capable of. You feel down, you feel depressed. Your brother and sister in Christ, they're there for you. They're there for the phone call. They're there for time after prayer. Tuesday night prayer, when everybody is going out the door, some of you are sitting there in prayer and praying for one another and lifting each other up. Why? Why? Because you know you need each other. You can't do this alone. We need the prayers of one another. We need the sharpening of the saints. Third, ministry requires discipleship. Oh, wait, well, duh. You can't do discipleship in, in singles. You have to do it in twos and threes. You have to. He wants leaders that train one another. And this was modeled for us uh, by Paul and Silas. Remember, we, we preached Acts 16 last year. We were in Acts 16. Remember when Paul and Silas find Timothy? What are they quick to do? When they find a faithful man, what are they quick to do? What do they, what do, they do? They bring them along. Sorry, I just did a Sam, didn't I? Where I asked a question that was like impossible to answer one specific way. <laughs> He does it all the time. He's like, everybody's saying things that are right, but none of them are the word that he's looking for. And so he's like, you know what I'm talking about? He does it all the time. I'm like, huh? I feel like my mouth's moving. Just like, it looks like. So I didn't mean to do that to you. 
Uh, no, Paul and Silas, they went and they invited people with them to go because they valued discipleship. They recognized that it was something that we have to do in twos and threes and groups as teams for the sake of discipleship. That's what we're doing. And so, so Jesus sends them in twos. And here's the key point for this section. Ministry is the partnership. Ministry. This is, we're defining the word ministry now. A very broad word. But this is what ministry is. It's the partnership of disciples going, going out in faith. That's how we do ministry. Ministry is the partnership of disciples going in faith. And Kaya is a partnership. This is our call. God is sending us quite literally two by twos into Kansas City that we might be used to win people to Christ. You know, verse 12, if you jump down, it says, and they went out and preached that men should repent. That's what we're doing. Last year at this retreat, God began to focus us on evangelism. Did anybody else see that vision? He began to focus our attention on evangelism. We began to approach things a little bit differently this year. And for some of you, it took a good six to nine months before you understood what, what the heck we were talking about. And we're beginning to see the fruit of that. So check this out. Last year at this time, we had about nine Bible studies. By the end of this year, we'll probably be at 17. Do you understand what I'm saying here? You know how that works? God grows a Bible study. We recognize two leaders that can be sent out. And we take those two leaders and we plant them somewhere else in the city. And they begin doing the work that they did before somewhere else. And then it happens again. And that is how we're going to reach the city, with open Bibles. We believe that it's open Bibles and and inviting people to study God's word that does the work. It's it's his word that's responsible for bearing fruit. It's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to just go and to go in twos. To be a team, to do it as a team. That's our responsibility. Let him bring in the fruit. And he's doing it, folks. He's doing it. There's no greater endeavor on earth than to open the word of God and let it speak. And we have to do it as a team. You know, 75% of our class is currently involved in discipleship at some level. At least. It's probably more than that. That was an estimation. Either you're discipling, you're being discipled, you're an LFBI, you're in D2. That's kind of how I measured that. More than 75% of the ministry. And so, man, praise God for that. Don't lose focus on what the mission is. Okay? Don't forget the other parts of being a disciple. Discipleship isn't being a disciple. Discipleship is part of the training to do the work of being a disciple. You understand? And so listen to me very carefully. For those of you who fall outside of that, maybe you haven't signed up for discipleship yet. Maybe you're still praying through it. You're trying to figure out if this is even the church for you. Listen to me. I want to beckon you. I want to provoke you to be a disciple, to be counted like the 12, and let, let someone come alongside you as, as twos and, and, and train you and sharpen you and unify you to the body so we can all be used to see God change our city. Yeah. I'm inviting you to come and participate with us. You know, all of this is the fruit of us just going in faith as partners in ministry. Do you guys feel like you have partnership in this, in this class? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, some of you maybe don't feel that way. And, and man, let's see that change. Let's work on that. But man, I feel so unified with you. And I love you guys so much. And I feel like there's so much. If I look across the room and I look at your faces, I can see the people that are behind you. 
like, not literally, but like in ministry, spiritually. Like I can see the people that are holding up your arms and I can see the people that discipled you and the people that you're discipling and the people in your small group and I can see the residue of their investment all over you and all over your faces. I'm so thankful for that. That's called unity. This calling comes with power and we're not halfway through my message, so keep focused. This does not yet mark the halfway point. So, so we're doing it Dan style this year. Right? That dude can talk. That dude has no concept of time. Okay, listen. The calling comes with power. Power. The calling comes with it comes with power. And listen, look look back at verse uh, I believe it's seven. Yeah. Verse seven it says, and and gave them and gave them power over unclean spirits. These men these men went in the authority and the power of Jesus himself. Yeah. Acts one seven says that uh, this is Jesus' last last conversation that he has with the disciples before he leaves. And just before the Spirit comes, he says to them, uh, it, is, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Okay? That's in his own power. But ye shall receive the power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witness unto me both in Ju- uh, Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so here's our key point. Before I break this down, key point. Power is always given by God to do things that would otherwise be impossible. That would otherwise be impossible. For instance, doubling the number of Bible studies that we have in Kansas City in a year. If we would have said at the beginning of the year that we were going to double the number of Bible studies, I never said that. I never had that conversation with anyone. I just knew we, want, we just wanted to make more Bible studies. That was it. God did something impossible in us. Right? And, and power is always given by God to do things that would otherwise seem to be um, impossible to do. Okay. So the question is then why do so many of us fear? Why do so many of us fear? Why are so many of us so insecure? You know, there were several instances over this year where, where God was showing me clearly that some of you needed to be challenged to take new roles in leadership and ministry, to start new Bible studies, to, 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 to disciple, to lead some sort of ministry thing. And a lot of times what I would hear, a lot of times, was that I'm just not sure if I'm ready for that. I, I'm... I'm and some of you are at least honest enough to say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And I'm, I'm going to put Amanda on the spot because you know, when, when I asked them to do the Grandview thing, I, you know, the thing was, I just believed that it needed to happen. I can't explain it. I just believed it. And, and the thing is, they saw it. They saw it. 
maybe a little begrudgingly, but they saw it. Now, Amanda was honest enough to come to me and be like, I don't think I'm ready for this. Mm. Yeah, you are. Let's pray. <laughs> now she's got a Bible study that's busting at the seams. And women are growing. Yes. And people are catching a vision. It's one of the most exciting things that's happening in our ministry. And he's doing it through someone who said, I'm not really qualified to do this, I don't think. We forget that we have power given to us by Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. We just forget. But just like the disciples, we go in His authority. We're full of His Spirit. We have His mind. There's nothing that we should fear. There's nothing that we can't do if He calls us to do it. You know, just like we read last night, David's mighty man, Shama. We have the power and authority to lay claim on the promises that God gave us, the territory that God has entrusted to us. I mean, that man saw, he saw this territory belongs to God. And it didn't matter if he was standing alone. He was going to defend it to his death. He wasn't concerned about the outcome. He just knew what was right and he obeyed. And that's what we need to be about. We can't, we can't be afraid that we're not good enough. God's made us good enough. You know, if your Bible study is on a campus, will God not use use that Bible study? Will he not use that? Well, not if you fear. He can't use fear. If your Bible study is in Grandview or Raytown, will, will God not use you in that place? Not if you're lazy. If your Bible study reaches international students, will God not give you favor with them? Not if we're not praying. See, the power is is in those things and the fact that we're disciplined enough to be in his word and lay claim on his power and pray to him and call upon him, that's where the power lies. Matthew 17, 15 says, Lord, have mercy on, on my son. Okay, so, okay, wait, 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 hold on. Let me give you some context here. So the disciples are doing what God called them to do here and they're going out and they're like healing people and they're preaching the gospel. And what happens is this man comes to Jesus and he says, look, Jesus, I took my son to your disciples and they couldn't do anything with him. He's like a raving lunatic. He's losing his mind, right? So Lord, I have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic and, and sore vexed for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and, and oft into the water and I brought him to that. In other words, he's flopping around throwing himself in fire trying to drown himself. He's just a raving lunatic. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from the very hour. Now listen to me. Verse 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Why couldn't we do the thing that you called us to do? I mean, we, we acknowledge that you asked us to do it. We went. We thought we were going and doing what you asked. Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto, unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Howbeit this kind goeth out, see I want to say this part too, 21, Howbeit this kind goeth not out by, uh, 
but by prayer and fasting. But by prayer and fasting. So listen to me, key point. God's power over the impossible is tapped by faith and request. Power over devils. Power over the satanic strongholds in our city. Power over swayed, uh, 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 the sway of false doctrines that, that have so many of our friends and the people that we know imprisoned and in bondage to the world. Power over that is belief and prayer. And many of us don't believe. I mean, we, it's amazing how little our expectations are. How restrained we are in what we believe. Why don't we just presume that God's going to do the most crazy thing that we can think? Why is it that we don't just assume that God wants to to change Kansas City from the inside out, starting with us? Why can't we believe that when we have very little faith? And then beyond it, some of us are deluded by the fact that we're going to reach Kansas City, and yet we don't pray for the city. We're not going and asking and begging him and pleading with him to do the thing that we know that we're called to do, that we believe that we're called to do. We're unwilling to even pray about it. Listen to me, Kyle. I believe that what's going to make us go from a place where we're just focused on outreach and to seeing ourselves busting at the seams with people who are desperate to hear God's word is prayer. And it starts, it starts right here with me. God's power over the impossible is tapped by faith and request. Next, the calling demands preparedness. The call, it demands preparation. Eight, verse eight, Jesus says to his disciples before he sends them out, he says, uh, and he commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only. No scrip, no bread, no money in their, in their purse, but be shod with sandals and put on uh, and not put on two coats. Okay, this is weird. This was the weirdest part. Okay? So, first of all, let's start with what he said not to take. And I had to study this a little bit. First of all, he says don't take a script. Okay, now a script is like a bag that you keep provisions in. It's like a man purse. Okay? Satchel. I had a satchel in college. I had one. It was when no one else had them. And you know what? It got called a man purse. Okay? So I had to endure that. They weren't always seen as like a favorable form of fashion. People weren't behind it. So then you bought a Bro, I've been having fanny packs. I don't think there's been a time after six that I haven't owned a fanny pack. In fact, actually, one time I lost my fanny pack, and Victoria gave me one of hers. That was like five years ago. Remember that? That was sweet. That was before she was following Christ. No script, no bag for provisions. In other words, look, I don't want you to take things with you that you can rely on. Because I want you to rely on me. No bread. Okay, so there's no food. So, so they, had to, they had to trust God daily that he'd fill their belly. They had to trust him. They had to rely on him. No money. Okay, no money. No money. So, so they would trust Christ for unexpected needs. 
Because money is what fixes unexpected needs. Something comes up and you're like, oh, well, I guess I'll buy this. And, and Okay, so no money. Because they needed to trust Christ for unexpected needs. Things that, that, that they didn't anticipate. They needed to trust Him for. And the last thing, don't put on two coats. So they would be reminded to return to the Lord when they grew cold. In other words, as the season passes and this time you spend away from me, going and preaching the gospel, the season's going to change. When you start getting cold, you can't rely on that second coat to bundle up. What I need for you to do is when, you, when things start getting cold, I need you to return to me. So don't take two coats because I want you to feel the coldness around you. And so, look, look, we could study this out, but we don't have time, but these are awesome principles. Listen to me. When things grow cold, return to Christ. When, you're, when you don't think you have provision, return to Christ. When you think that you're supposed to rely on your, your, your worldly and temporal devices to get you through something like money or a credit card, return to Christ. So, so why, take the, why take the staff and why put on the sandals? Okay, so this is what, is what they're supposed to take. They're supposed to take the wardrobe of a pilgrim. They're supposed to take the wardrobe of a pilgrim. Our staff, okay, first of all, the staff that he asked them to take, our staff is the word of God. A staff is a long stick used for walking to relieve the pressure of walking for days. Shepherds carried them because they could rest on them. They could lean into them. They made walking, it's easier to walk with three legs apparently. Okay, so, so you just lift yourself, you know, and relieve some of that pressure. Lots of people use them when they hike. Okay, that's what a staff did. A staff was a tool for the shepherding trade, intended to help guide and prod the flock. It was used to help and prompt other people. So the staff for us is an absolute symbol of Psalm 23:4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff are intended to draw us closer to him in relationship, for him to provoke us and to prod us the right direction, that we might do the things that he asks us to do. And if we carry a staff, much the way that God, Jesus Christ, carried a staff as a good shepherd to guide us and provoke us and to go the right way, our responsibility is to take God's word as a staff and do the same in other people's lives. So when we go, we have to go with the staff. We have to go with the word of God. We have to be prepared to do the work that he did in our lives to promote that truth. Are you with me? I'm already losing you. Dang it. Does anybody need a coffee? I'll get you a coffee if you need one. No? Okay, stay with me. This is crucial. Do you understand? If you guys are thinking that you're going to go minister in Kansas City and reach out to people, but you're not going to put the Word of God first, if you put your opinions first, if you put your perspectives on the Word of God first, if you try to give good advice, good life advice, you're going to screw that person up, and, 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 you, and you might as well just go home. Because you're not doing the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry requires a staff. The staff of God's word is what keeps us in his will. It's the thing we use to remind others to obey. And our, our feet need to be shod. Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. He tells them, look, have your feet shod, put on the sandals, and go. Feet preparation is important for a person who's going to go. Mm-hmm. Having your feet prepared is important for someone who's going. And we have to go. That's our responsibility is delivering the gospel of peace to people. We're messengers of peace. And our feet need to be prepared to do that. So we have our staff, 
that we rely on, that we lean into, that, that, that helps us to do the walking, and then our feet are prepared to go do that walking, to go, to, to, to be a part of the mission. And here's our key point. A prepared disciple is dependent on God's word and is going out to deliver it. That's what they're doing. You're not a disciple if you're not doing this. You might be in discipleship, but you aren't a disciple of Jesus Christ until you're, you're dependent on God's word and going out to deliver it. You understand me? Don't, listen, do me a favor. Don't ever refer to yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you're doing this. Just do us, all of us who are actually doing that work, do us a favor. Don't lump yourself in with, like, if you're one of the masses, don't pretend like you're one of the 12. Because you make, hard, make our work harder. But you know what I do ask you to do is come be a part of doing this, being prepared, learning to lean in God's word, and going and delivering to other people. That's what we're called to do. Your purpose is not outside of that. You have no purpose outside of that, Christian. The calling requires a plan. 10, verse 10. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Whoa. That's no joke. Okay, now listen to me. Let's start here. The plan was to preach to those who, rece- who would receive you. The ones who receive you, those are the ones you preach to. And for those who don't, move it along. Move right along. See, Jesus knew that some would not accept the message. And his point was, let my father handle it. Let my father deal with it. Convincing someone is not your responsibility. Let my father handle it. Many of us in Kaya do one of two things when we find that someone that we're investing in is refusing what we're we're putting down. When we present someone with the truth of the gospel, there's a lot of times that we do one of two things. The first thing is, and this, and this is just, this is common. This is common, okay? We don't, we don't get the hint. And we belabor the point in desperation. Well, part of that is because we love souls. But listen to me. In terms of God's plan, it's just not practical. Because he wants to handle that. It requires a supernatural work at that point. Let him do the supernatural work. You know, we're unwilling to let people go sometimes. And, and the people who are refusing the gospel, those people aren't our primary target. You recognize that, right? See, the hurt, the hurt people, the desperate people, the tired people, the lonely people, the needy people, the soft-hearted people, those are the target audience for the gospel. You understand that? That's the plan for the disciple, is to go and find those people and present the truth to them. And what we need to learn to do is pray in trusting people. People with a hard heart, we need to trust them to the one who gives people a new heart. You don't give people a new heart. And so if you come up against a hard heart, your job is to be like, okay, I'm praying for you. And, 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 and in a spiritual sense, dust your feet off and move on to find a faithful person who is ready to receive the truths that God has given to you. 
So don't belabor. Don't, don't be, you know, I, I saw this all the time. Um, gosh. I saw this all the time in the high school ministry. Well-intentioned young high school students who so desperately wanted to learn how to give the gospel, they would get fixated on one or two people in their clique. And they spent four years spinning their wheels with the same person, same people. They're just not receiving, Brandon. Will you pray for me? Yeah, I've been praying for them for four years, brother. Go find someone else to share the gospel with. Like that guy on your basketball team. He's, he's, not, he's not ready. Pray to God and move along. There's other people in your school who are tired and desperate and needy and ready to receive. Okay, the other thing is when people refuse the gospel, a lot of times we don't, we don't dust our feet off. We, we sit there in the dust. We get hurt. And we don't continue in the evangelical work. We get hurt. Our feelings get hurt. And so we sit there in the dust. And, we, and, we, and we're saddened by what's happened. And we fear, listen, this is what the truth is. We fear that we might be rejected again. And it paralyzes us. You know, God comforts Samuel when he goes through this. Samuel's so upset when, when they want a king, when Israel wants a king. They're, he's so upset. And, and you know what God says? Listen, this isn't on you. Their disobedience is towards me. Don't put this on you. Be of a good spirit. I still have plans for you. Listen to me. This, this is a slight to me. I can handle it. Let me deal with it. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Look, when people don't receive you, it's okay. Let my father handle it. He's a good father. Here's a key point. A disciple makes time for faithful men and women, not unfaithful men and women. Real simple. Time to write that down. A disciple makes time for faithful men and women, not unfaithful men and women. Do you understand that, guys? That's going to save us a lot of time as a ministry, and we're going to get so much more done. God, Jesus was very practical. He's very practical. And we ought to be practical, too. We ought to be spiritual. And we ought to expect God to do things that are insane. But at the same time, we have to recognize people who don't want Christ. And then we need to go find the ones that do. Very simple. The calling requires a purpose. It requires a purpose. Verse 12, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed them with oil, uh, uh, anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. You know, it's very easy to confuse the purpose in today's Christian culture. It's very easy. Many Christians are devoting their time to good endeavors like, like building wells in Africa and playgrounds in Costa Rica. Many Christians are trying to change society through protest and political activism. You guys see it, don't you? You know, many Christians are, are tutoring in their neighborhoods and feeding the needy. And listen to me, all of these things have a place. No one's sliding any of that. No one's saying any of that's bad. But it's not what Jesus asks to do, asks his disciples to do. I mean, he doesn't even get let, 
He doesn't even let them take food. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's not what he's asking them to do here. But in today's age, you know, it's really easy to get drawn into that and allured by that, that social justice, you know, things that are important. We begin to emphasize things that, that are secondary. We begin to emphasize the things that are secondary when the primary thing is to preach repentance. Okay. Do you ever, have you ever told your friend repent? Have you ever said to someone you were preaching the gospel to, repent? <laughs> of course you haven't. You know why? Because it's strong language. And we're afraid to say it. You know what you really need to do is just repent. We don't say it because it's strong language and we're afraid of it. You know what? We're afraid to tell people that they're sinners. We're afraid to pose the question, do you know Christ or are you going to hell? Now listen to me, brother and sister, with a sword in your hand. Christians today are afraid to call people to repentance. But if you don't call someone to repentance then you don't call them to salvation. The salvation message is repent. So what do you want from that relationship, that person that you're praying for? You want them to kind of like slowly ease their way into the, to the Christian water? You know, wait out there a little bit? And maybe by osmosis, they'll accept Jesus Christ. Maybe just being around the body of Christ will be enough. Listen to me. The message is repent. And that's our key point. A disciple preaches repentance. Do you beckon people to repent? The sin issue is the issue. The sin issue is the issue that demands a need for God. Do you and people invite people to consider their sin? Do you invite people to consider their sin? That's what the, the real disciples do that. So here's our conclusion. After all that, you ready for the conclusion? Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> Conclude. <laughs> the question is, are you a disciple of Christ after looking at that list? And some of you were convinced before we started today that you were, and now that we're done, you recognize that there's deficiencies in your walk, that you're not like the 12. <coughs> You're like the others. Maybe it's just one area that you're falling short in. But are you a disciple of Christ? First and foremost, are you defined by your unique relationship with Jesus? Have you put on intimacy and devotion to his word? Over, have you put that above everything? Have you put that above everything else? Are you living in Christ's power? Or are you fearful of the work? When we talk about the mission, we talk about going to your friends and, and going to your neighbors and going to your family and going to your school and going to your workplace for the gospel's sake. Does that make you afraid? Are you prepared? Are you growing? Are you maturing in a way that makes you ready for the mission? Are you following his plan and purpose to go? Are you stewarding your relationships rightly? Are you seeking faithful men and women, women to invest in this is what disciples do. Now listen to me. If you're a faithful disciple, the outcome 
will be will be what? What will the outcome be? There's a Sam question. Sure. Fruit. And what does that fruit look like? It looks like Christ's fame. Verse 14 of chapter 6 says, And King Herod heard of him. No, wait, wait, wait. Hold up. Jesus at this point wasn't doing anything. The disciples were doing the work. You see this? This comes right after the disciples going and doing what Christ asked them to do. Okay, now listen to me. Herod heard of him and got, was like, who is this dude? Wait a second, who is this guy? For his name was spread abroad, and he said that, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him? Like, this guy heard about Jesus, and he was freaked out to the point where he's like, this has to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Jesus started getting famous. Not because his preaching and teaching, not alone anyway, because his disciples went and did what God, what God had asked them to do. We want to see Christ's name made famous? Mm-hmm. Be a disciple. Mm-hmm. Be a disciple. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time and thank you for my friends. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Um, worship team, you can come up. God, thank you that, that uh, Lord, you said such a specific thing to your disciples and so many, so many things from your word. If we just look closely at them and recognize how much they apply, God, I ask that you teach us how to be a disciple by studying your word. That we would look to your word for an example on how to live and how to be obedient and how to answer the call. Lord, I believe with all my heart that there's men and women in this room right now who are called to foreign missions. That they're called to go on the mission field. That they're called to go abroad. Some of them are called to go to places in the United States. Some of them are called to go out into Missouri and to start Bible studies in even the most rural parts of our state. Lord, some of them are called to Kansas City. And Lord, you're preparing them to plant churches, to invest in Midtown, to do all kinds of things, God, things that we can't even imagine. And Lord, things that if we think about, we get afraid. Lord, help us to think so big. Lord, speak to our hearts. Bridle our vain imaginations. Lord, if things aren't you, help us to bridle those things and submit them to your word. Lord, at the end of the day, make us disciples. And if there's anyone in this room who recognizes that their life isn't matching up to the example that you gave us today, Lord, make them faithful to repent. Show them their need to pray to you and to call upon you for help in areas that they struggle. Areas of difficulty. Areas where they want to grow and they want to answer the call. Lord, would you help us today to not be like the masses But Lord, to simply be like the 12 that you called and separated and made particularly peculiar. In a world of people that called themselves Christians, could we not be peculiar, Lord? Could we not be unique? Could you not use us to spread your word abroad? We ask it with all of our hearts. That's what we want to give our lives to. We ask it in the name of your Son and the power and authority of his name.